0: Well, amen, amen. Good morning, Harvest. Uh, if you, I have not had a chance to get to know you yet, or if you don't, if you're fairly new to Harvest, my name is Andy. I'm the uh, pastor of students and young adults here. And so uh, we're going to jump right into the text this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just do us a favor. Just pop your hand in the air. We have some ushers coming down who would love to put a Bible in your hand uh, this morning that you could follow along with us. So... Um, Look, this this week's text is is a a direct continuation of of Paul's thoughts from from last week, but it also stands in direct contrast to Paul's thoughts from last week. So so Paul started last week, just as a quick recap, was telling Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's, he's saying this, watch out, right? He's saying, watch out, the last days are evil, and the last days are terrible, and the last days, people will do and speak and act completely opposite of, of what they say. And they'll do things in complete contrary to what they say they believe. And so Paul continues with Timothy and telling him how there already have been examples of, of this exact evil that, that he must avoid such people. And so from the onset, we can see uh, Paul's uh, passion for For Timothy to truly understand that there must be a separation between the godly and godlessness. And so church, that's where we start this morning, at the separation between the godly and the godlessness. So um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're gonna start at verse 10, go the whole way through the end of the chapter. It says this, You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet for them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for. Every good work. Before we continue, let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we have just read this text, and, and God, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Christ in it all. God, I pray that we would not leave this place uh, unchanged because of your word, not because it's it's someone talking or preaching, God, but because it is your word, and we know that it is the breath of God. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place the same way we came in, but we'd leave this place changed by your Spirit and by knowing the truth that this word contains. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So look, Paul's just written about the tragedy of godlessness. Now he's, now he's going to redirect Timothy. See, Timothy has seen what Paul has, has actually endured, and he hasn't swayed from God, but, but Paul dove deeper into the gospel and to who, who God is. So, so Timothy saw the example of Paul, saw the example of his instruction from the scriptures to help him navigate this godlessness that was happening, and that is yet to come. Now, Here's the thing, and, and these first two points are going to be like, hey Andy, no duh, that's, that's a no-brainer for me, but we must be reminded of them. Here's the first thing, a true life in Christ proves itself. A true life in Christ proves itself. It proved, it proved Paul's life, it proved the life of the disciples, and it must prove you. See, when we say, Paul says, you have followed my teaching, well what's his teaching? It is gospel teaching. It is the The gospel, it is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And in his teaching, he doesn't depart from it. He doesn't say, well, I'm not quite sure if that's real anymore. He sticks to it. He goes on, my conduct, how good was my conduct? My aim in life. And I think if we we read Paul's letters to to these different churches that he wrote to, we would know that Paul's aim in life is actually to point people towards Jesus and to show obedience to Christ. Timothy was, was... Paul's pupil and, and Timothy followed him, and, and here's, here's the, the kind of the, the immediate connection is, is we all follow somebody. Who we follow and, and how we follow is actually an indicator of our own hearts. Now, the question is, do the people that you follow or the things you follow, do they spur you on to godliness, or do they spur you on to godlessness? And I think, you know, I, I don't say that in jest. I say that as an introspective truth that we have to wrestle with. Are we filling our hearts, our minds, our lives with the things that are pleasing to God? Are we filling our hearts, our minds, our lives with the things that are completely contrary to what he says? Is who and what I'm following helping me or hurting me? You know, too, too, many, too many of us are okay with, you know, with with the metaphorically playing in the devil's pudding. We get filthy, then we hop into the shower and we try to rinse everything off, hoping that no one's going to notice. But somehow we always miss the part behind the ear, right? And then, and then uh, you know, someone notices that we missed the part behind the ear, and then we say, hey, by the way, uh, the devil's putting your playing in? You missed the piece behind the ear that you tried to, to, to clean off, and then we get mad, then we say they're judging, and then suddenly, they're your enemy. The person looking out for you and calling you out in a godly life is we treat them as the enemy. Then we try to spin our wickedness onto them, because we say oh you're not being very graceful in this moment you know and we're taught that we're taught as a culture to play the victim i think We're taught to deflect when someone tries to show us our faults. That's that's the culture that we we live in, and we need to quit playing with the culture and and follow people like Paul who are saying, look at me. And he's not saying, look at me, look how great I am, look at everything that I've done. He's saying, look at me, because I look to Christ, and I emulate Christ, and I reflect Christ. Christ. And when when our lives begin to to reflect other things, look, church, it's obvious, and the culture knows it, and that's why people look at us and say, you're a bunch of hypocrites, because you don't even follow the very things that are in the book you claim to believe. And so we're taught these things. We need to quit playing around with the culture and look to Paul, and in turn, look to to Christ. Paul's like, you want proof? You You want proof I'll point you to Jesus? Look, everything I have done points to Jesus. My teaching points to Jesus. My conduct points to Jesus. My aim in life points to Jesus. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my endurance, all my persecutions, they point back to Jesus. They don't point to Paul. They don't point to me. He's not saying, look how great I am, Timothy. Don't forget how great I am. He's saying, look what I've endured for the sake of the gospel even on the brink of death the lord is still with paul paul is saying the lord is still with me in the midst of persecution paul is still indicating the lord delivered him from it all he's saying he realizes the the reality of the persecution and he's not killed thankfully right but he at this moment right but he has suffered in the midst of the persecutions but he's able to carry on the gospel work and so I begin to line my own heart, as, as so often I do, where right? I try not to read into the text, but I try to line up my own heart with the very expressions that he's saying. And I'm saying, like, man, could I write this letter? Could I say, like, look, guys, as me, as, as one of your pastors here, could, could I write this to you and say, hey, you've looked at my teaching, my conduct, my life, my aim in my life. You've looked at my faith, my patience, my steadfastness. And would you guys say, yeah, that's right? Or would you, would you guys just say, eh, I don't know? And we wrestle with this, as not only as pastors, or, you know, but as Christians and as people. People are really trying to follow Christ, and this is, this is the reality. Look at verse 12. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if that doesn't make you pause and think, you need to reread the sentence again. One of my, one of my kind of go-to podcast pastors um, there's a guy named J.D. Greer, and he always says, Christianity makes a terrible hobby. I'm inclined to believe him. Christianity makes a terrible hobby. This, look, that's not natural to us. To say, yeah, like I know the consequences, and they're bad. I want that. That's not the natural part of who we are. That's not natural for us to want that. And it goes actually against our, our bodily instinct, As humans, as as culture, as people, we try to find the easiest way from point A to point B. Our bodies are naturally inclined to find the least painful path, the least strenuous path, from point A to point B. And that's that's what we are inclined to. And Paul's saying, look, if you're going to follow the gospel, you're going to be persecuted. And, And we go, that sounds good. No, we don't. Like, we, we struggle with that. Like, I mean, at least for me, I struggle with that. Like, I'm like, okay, so if I'm really following Christ, i got to deal with what Paul's dealt with? See, our bodies seek out the, the simplest path, the easiest path, and our mind the simplest solutions. And again, when I read that, church, like, I just read that, I don't go, yes, I want that. I go, anything but that. Like, Jesus, didn't, didn't you promise me a life of, like, glory with you? Yes, through suffering. No, 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 God, you don't understand what I'm telling you. You said that I could have great life with you. Yes, through persecution. Yes, through being made in my image, not being made in yours. And so that's what we struggle through. And so here's the thing that we really, church, must begin to walk through is that the godly life also must be centered on Christ. Everyone say, no, duh. (laughs) But here's the reality, church, too many of us, and even myself at times, we want the godly life on our terms. We want the godly life on on what I read into the text, not what the text is telling me. We say, well, did God really mean this? And you know, like, that was written a long time ago, so he must have changed his mind. When we read that text, when we read verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. An actual Christian life will cost you something. Some more than, more than others, and, and if you choose to live a godly life, that means you care about what God cares about. That means that you speak for what God desires, and you speak against the evil that's in your culture. It means that you'll have to come to terms with that you might not become everything that you hoped that you would ever be, but you'd become the thing that Jesus intended you to be. It might be saying no to yourself and yes to Jesus. It might be saying, I am not going to pursue my flesh, my my sinfulness. I'm going to pursue Christ. It might be saying, God is calling me somewhere else outside the field of study that I'm in right now. It might be that God's saying, I don't want you to be the lawyer, the doctor, whatever, but I want you to go on mission for me. It will cost us something. And we, we... I'll say, I don't know if I say our politicians or your politicians, because I'm not Canadian, but, but um, your politicians, well, I guess a lot of mine too, right? Because we look at bills that are happening all over the states and it's just awful. Awful, right? But those who oppose, this is what we're, we're told, and it says, those who oppose fill in the blank, those who oppose things like abortion, those who oppose things like homosexuality, those who oppose things like whatever, fill in the blank, whatever the hot topic is for the week, those who oppose those things, you are told you will be on the wrong side of history. That's what you're told. How do I know this? Because I have quotes in YouTube clips from the prime minister saying saying that. You'll be on the wrong side of history. And, and that, that's weird for me to say because I even have American politicians saying, hey, if you hold to these things, you're on the wrong side of history. And we need to remember so often that, yes, we might be on the wrong side of history when it comes to the textbook, but we will not be on the wrong side of history when it comes to God. And look, church, that has to be our main focus. That has to be where we fall. That has to be where we lie. And I'm not talking about, like, our opinions. I'm talking on the biblical truth. I'm not talking about the things you think Jesus says. I'm talking about the things Jesus actually said. I'm not talking about our opinions that we read into the text. I'm talking about when we read the text and let it saturate over us the the truths that we pull out of that. There's a lot of good opinions out within the church, and I mean the collective church, our church, whatever church, right? There's a lot of good opinions, and they might be biblically based, but they might not be a fact. They might just be an opinion. And we have to be cautious and careful to say, my opinion is your fact. And that's with a lot of different areas within our lives. But we also have to realize that We'll never be wrong in God's eyes when we stand for God's truth and living a godly life is worth everything in contrast to what is to come. How do we know what is to come? Because Paul just talked about the godlessness that's to come. And that's when you guys go, but Andy, you have to say that. You're the pastor. You have to tell me that it looks better. You you have to tell me that the godly life is better than the the life in the flesh. Now let's let's define this. When we talk about the flesh, right, because a lot of times we think we're like the flesh. I'm not talking about your physical body. We're talking about the very thing that you want against the very thing that God says you should have, right? And so your flesh are the things that you constantly give your life over to, the things uh, of your sinful nature. That's the, quote, flesh. And so this passage tells us that living a godly life will cost us something, and it's only gonna get worse, and culture itself is only going to, to get worse. And we, here's what baffles me. Like, we act shocked when these things happen. When, when the culture starts going awry, we start getting shocked, and we're like, wait a minute, <laughs> it's like, why? It's made clear sense from, from the very beginning. Culturally, we have all looked down the road saying, wow, what are our kids going to have to deal with? Man, back in my day. And here's the problem. Those, those rails, those, those trains that are chugging down the track and we're going, they're going to have to deal with a pretty big train. Guys, that train's in the station now. It's no longer what are they going to have to deal with, it's what are we going to have to deal with? What are we going to have to process? What are we going to have to stand up for? What are we going to have to be persecuted for in the face of evil for Christ himself? Now, I'm not saying like go out and get yourself beheaded, but I'm saying here's the reality of of where where we're talking about is your faith will cost you something. When you stand on the word of God, it will cost you something. And this is what Paul is getting to. But here's the good news for this. It doesn't say all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, which means you don't live it on your own. You live it in Christ Jesus, which means you live it with the spirit living within you, which means you have the supernatural power of God himself living within you if you are a believer, which means you don't do it on your own, which should be a sense of relief, because anytime I try to do something on my own, I fall flat on my face. One of my professors at, at, at the school I, I go to, uh, he always says that the scary thing about ministry is that so often we can do ministry on our own power. And when we do ministry on our own power, so often we can't tell within our church, the, the I call the production or, you know. The church doesn't go, oh, they did, did that on their own power. But so often we can fool ourselves. But we, we live this life not on our own, but in Christ. Jesus says in, in John 15, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And, and, and so we have to start, we begin to wrestle with, with questions like this about like, if we face no persecution right now in our lives, if our lives are, for all intents and purposes, are easy, or simplistic, or we come to church, we go to small group, and man, it's such a joy and, and it's always such a time of of just energy, uh, energy and, and and encouragement and then we leave that place and then we go and, and then our lives through the week, everyone's oh you're such a great, you know, whatever and, and all these different things like I just say like if if Paul says we if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted, then I begin to play with this like if we're not being persecuted, I don't mean like like crazy persecution, but I mean like in any way. Are we truly, truly living out the very faith that Christ has called us to? Now that, that's a hard thing to say from here. I, I don't want that to be lost on you. But the reality is, when I read that text and, and here in a few sentences in, in a few few minutes, when we get to the, far, the, the, the part that, that all Scripture is God breathed, I, go, I have to. We have to believe that that, that persecution is going to come. I'm not saying go out and make enemies, but it's almost natural in the Christian life. I mean, my students are crying out loud. If you guys live a, a, a Christian life, if you truly follow Jesus, your, your social group is going to look vastly different. If you actually say like, no, I'm not going to do the things that Jesus tells me not to do. I'm going to pursue a life of godliness. And so that's my students. Now for, for the adults in the room and, and my young adults in Look, if you're truly following Jesus, there's a good chance your social group might change. And if your social group strictly is the people that are sitting around right now in this service, that's a problem too. See, people are opposed to holiness. And the scary thing is sometimes those people are us. We start throwing out the, don't you judge me. We start throwing out the, "Well, you think you're holy now? Like All these different things. You know, the, the things that we consume and the things that we say are all directly related to our heart. And far too many people like to claim Christ without understanding that, that this happens. And then when, when, when the persecution happens or, or when the ill feelings happen or when you get called a name happens, we go, mm, I don't like that. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for heaven. It's like, then we start praying to God, God, I signed up for heaven. I didn't sign up for this. God, I signed up to be in glory with you. I didn't sign up for this. God, I signed up to do this life with you. Come on. And and I I really begin to, look, the the end goal of God is, is not your happiness. The end goal of God is not to make you rich or prosperous. The end goal of God isn't to take away your disease. The end goal of God is not whatever you think it is. The end goal of God isn't you. The end goal of God is his own glorification. The end goal of God is not me. It's not you, it's himself. And so can those things happen? Can God heal diseases? Can, can you find blessing through wealth? Can, can all these different, can you find happiness in Christ? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Paul is saying if you follow Jesus and you're in Christ and you're truly trying to live the godly life, those things are not the norm. And in fact, often those things, when you're living a life dedicated to Jesus, will have, you'll face suffering, you'll face hardship, you'll face uh, being mocked and being ridiculed, you'll you'll face being called narrow-minded and not with the times, and sometimes that's the extent to break us, which I find is odd. Look, Andy, you don't know. If I go and say that stuff at work, they're gonna start saying that I'm narrow-minded and I can't have that. Watch out now. All the while, our our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like India are getting beaten to death with rods and reeds. That happens today, in 2019. That's not some like, oh, well, back in the 1500s, the first missionaries, they didn't understand what was happening, so they beat the missionaries. No, 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 that's happening today. How do I know? Because I have friends who serve in the international mission field who come and tell stories about this is what the church is suffering And so what does it look like to suffer in this sense of Christendom? Because that's really what we're in. We are in Christ, Christ's kingdom in North America, and oh boy, it feels like such a protected kingdom, doesn't it? I can rail on the States because I'm American, right? One of the favorite, favorite verses in the States on July 4th is, if you would just pray for your country, the Lord will prosper you. Right? Here's the th- we've come to believe some of those things. Now, there's some biblical truth in those things, but like, we, we use it as like, the, the, the proof text, and that's not true. So what does it look like to suffer in Christendom? One commentator says this, Persecution may vary in degree and take different forms in different countries and in different ages. Listen to this. But the basics of the hostility of the world to godly men remains unchanged. The basics of the hostility towards men to the godly man remains unchanged. Now, I believe in, in this culture, when I say this culture, I'm referring to North America, so all of us combined, right? I believe, I believe in this culture the enemy is greatly at work and he is giving temporary comfort while the, while the church gladly accepts being able to, to function life with little gospel demand. Now, Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the gospel doesn't demand much, but we've come to believe sitting in a service and possibly small group or maybe serving just a little bit once in a while is the total expectation of God in our lives. That is not true. And it's probably the furthest thing from the truth. While parts of the world, like I said, are getting beaten and having to hide, we see it as a headline on USA Today or CNN or Fox News or whatever we go I'm glad that's not me and I'm glad the, that's not here but here's the reality church the war is here and it's coming full front to you and if the church doesn't stand up to stand against the things that God says are evil then we are going to fall The war is here, and while the the church of the world is strengthening due to their belief and conviction in the midst of persecution, the church in North America is becoming the epitome of what Paul has previously discussed. And we go, well, yeah, I love Jesus, but I can live my life of godlessness. No, you can't. He doesn't leave that up to you. The church in North America, in many ways, is, look, again, is is the lifeline of the social atmosphere and not a force against the enemy. We have to protect from being a holy roller community club. And when, church, we actually prevent and and begin to push back against the mentality of being a holy roller community club, guess what happens? The enemy starts knocking at the door, starts kicking down the door, and starts messing up what we're trying to do to advance the gospel. Now, we know with the Spirit working through us and in us, we know with the power of the Spirit going before us, that those forces have nothing on us. But here's the thing, church. When he starts picking apart the individual lives, and one by one... We keep falling. How many, how many prominent pastors have fallen lately because of moral failure? And in so, when people put their faith and trust in someone who, who is a pastor on a pulpit rather than in Christ himself, what happens? Their faith is rocked and shattered. And then we see churches that were 15,000 now having a 200-person service. You know, I, I once this is, I once heard that there's a Chinese missionary who came to, to preach in America, and when his time was over and he was returning home, he told to his host, Pastor, I've really enjoyed my time in America. But I've come to realize that the Chinese church is flourishing more in the persecution than you're flourishing in your prosperity. Now, if that's not a gut check, I don't know what is. Because there's something about prosperity that, that makes us kind of back off and Enjoy the comfortable life. Because like I said earlier, the human, the, the, who we are, doesn't go, I want the hard path. We try to find the easiest path of resistance. Our minds try to find the simplest path of resistance. And with all that being said, when he says that you will be persecuted, in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. like That's, that's just kind of the callback of what Daryl preached last week. That's the callback of saying godless, godlessness will happen. And it's not gonna happen out there. The godlessness is gonna be found in the church. It's, it's not the, oh yeah, culture's so terrible, but this, but you know, we can hunker down in the church. No, it's saying these things are gonna happen in the life of the believer. And so he's saying you're gonna see things go from bad to worse. You're gonna see people being deceived and being a deceiver. And this is the reality of what we have to, to walk through. But here's what Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, that you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul again, he, he shifts Everything from the, the general statement, now back directly talking to, to Paul, and he's saying, but as for you, and Paul is saying how it's going to change, and how it's going to look, and how it's going to feel, it's going to feel wrong, it's going to feel off, and it's going to feel wicked, but as for you, you continue on. You're going to see it happening around you, Timothy, but as for you, you continue on. Paul tells Timothy to continue on by doing two things. One, by remembering the past, which is verses 10 through 13, and also by focusing on the scriptures, which he's about to write. It's saying continue on. And here's the thing with continuing. It means that you have already been doing something. It means it's already a part of your life. It means if you continue to do something, it means you've already taken steps to get to the place that you're at. Here's the thing with continuing, it means you've been doing something, and too many of us know what we are to be doing, but we struggle to continue in it. Too many of us know what we ought to be doing, and we end up like Paul in the, when he's writing in Romans going like, God, like I, I, I'm a believer, and I, I believe in you, and I, I, I'm trying, God, but you know what, Like I feel so much more like I'm the old person, the old flesh that I used to be. And I'm struggling, God. Like I, I, like, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I know I should do, and God, my heart is wrecked, my spirit is getting torn apart, and I have no idea what to do now. And what does Paul end up saying? But I look to the cross. I look to the resurrection of Jesus. I dive harder into the gospel. One trend you'll, you'll notice with some of the personal trainers now is that they're ditching the fad diets. You have the Atkins diet, and... and whatever, all these different, like, you know, low-carb, high-fat, whatever, and, and you know, things like, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, you know the, all the trends, right? Obviously, I do not, so. Um, <laughs> but they don't work, right? We know that the trends don't work because it gets you slimmed down for a season of your life, and then, the, like, for, for the Atkins diet, like, back when that was, like, the fad back in the, the mid-2000s or early 2000s, whatever, right? We, what we saw is, like, everyone going on and people shrunk down. They're like, wow, you look great, and they're like, thanks, I cut carbs, and what happens the moment they start eating carbs again? And you're like, that shirt fit a little looser last week, right? And here's the thing. We get energized and and these these Fad things produce quick results, but it's not sustainable. So now a bunch of trainers, now what are they doing? They're going and they're teaching about making incremental changes that you would live a healthier lifestyle in the long term, things that are sustainable. And here's the thing. Too many of us do that with our own lives. We don't continue on. We start like just, we just kind of, we just stop and we get discouraged and and we use like fad spiritual diets or fad spiritual habits um, and they work for a while, but then we burn out of them. I got this new book, Andy. It's called Praying Through the Bible. That's what I'm going to do every single day. Two, three weeks later, hey, man, how's that going? I, I, chapter two is tough. It only has 10 chapters, man. Ah, you know. Or then we start looking at, hey, man, like, how's that, how's that study going? Like, how, how's your quiet time going? Because that's like the next cool thing, right? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, good for a while. I just really got to find something that I can just dive into and put my heart into and really just sustain and I think if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us have found ourselves in that same, same position. We, we like them for a while, but then we burn out of them and, and we need to find a way to commune with God that's by remembering what he has brought you through and then focusing you on the scriptures. It's, it's cut and dry. We continue the same way that Paul instructed Timothy to, by continuing on, by remembering what God has brought you through, what God has brought you to, and then looking at the scriptures for the truth. Now, there's no magical way to understand God outside of diving, into deep, diving deeper into his word. And sometimes we put it off for so long, we don't know where to start or how to begin again. And, or we get discouraged. We lack endurance. So, so hear this. If you, here's the practical thing for you. If you are struggling continuing in what you've learned, or if you're struggling in trying to get into the word, here's three steps that you can take. One, and students have already known this first one. Make it mechanical until it becomes natural. What I mean is you set the time, and it becomes a rigid thing. And you start going, but Andy, I don't want my life in Christ to be rigid. Look, if it's rigid or non-existent, I'd rather it be rigid. Because here's what happens. As we set these rigid schedules, saying, I'm going to make it mechanical. I'm going to force myself into it until God begins to illuminate himself back to me again, and I naturally begin to crave these things. So make it mechanical until it becomes natural. Two, know it's going to take time. You're not going to become a long-distance sprinter. You're not going to read from Genesis to Revelation all in one sitting and be like, yes! You're not going to do it. It's going to take time. It's going to take time for us to dive into these things. And here's the last thing. Ask God for the endurance. Believe it or not, you can ask God to help you understand His Word and to have endurance as you read the Word. So let me see. But as for you, continue in what you learned. Look, that you have firmly believed it, knowing whom you've learned it from. Continue firmly and learned. I have those three words underlined in my Bible. It says this, how from childhood you have been acquainted with these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a benefit to growing up in a Christian home. There's a benefit for that. And for so many of you who have young kids, and, and just like Andrea and I, like we have young kids, like it's a benefit, but it's a hard benefit because sometimes we start saying, Don't you know what Jesus says? And my three-year-old goes. <laughs> and we have to remember that we actually have non-believers in our house until they actually confess in Jesus. Now, growing up Christian doesn't mean you're Christian. Okay? Just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't automatically assume that you are in the kingdom of God. Growing up Christian doesn't automatically assume these things. He says that you have to dive in, you have to be taught these things. So parents, make sure you're teaching these scriptures to your children, showing them gracefully and lovingly what it means to follow Jesus. And when they screw up, you pick them up just like Jesus does to us and pat us off and say, now stop it, right? <laughs> I don't I don't do that. I don't know. What you're about. All right. But but here's the thing: like, we grow up. Paul said, Timothy, you grew up from these things. You knew these sacred writings. You knew what they meant. Now, what Paul's, like, here's, let's dive deep in some theology real quick, right? The old, the sacred writings, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament. Why? Because the New Testament was written when Timothy was growing up, All right? He had the, the Old Testament writings, which tells us what? The Old Testament points to Jesus, the Old, Testament point, the, the Old Testament is intricately linked to the New Testament, not a section of text to be unhitched from the Old Testament. Amen. And so here's what we say. Here's what we say. As one, one uh, commentator says, the Old Testament anticipates Christ, the New Testament explains Christ. So the Old Testament looks to Jesus, and as Jesus arrives, the New Testament explains who he is and what his expectation is of our lives. Now, verse 16 All scripture is breathed out by God, or some translations, God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipping for every good work. Now, the scriptures. How we need to love this book, church. The scriptures are God-breathed. And if that doesn't make you move at all, You need to wake up, because the scriptures are God-breathed. What does that mean? Here's two Greek words for you. The graphe, the text. Well, Andy, what is the text? This is the text, right? Here's the thing. It doesn't matter what translation you have. There's no contradiction even in the translations, It doesn't matter if you read an ESV, NASB, whatever. I can go off like alphabet soup right now. It doesn't matter which one you read. Read it because it is still the inspired word of God. The translations are all saying the same thing. You will not pick up a translation of the Bible and say, this says something different. So what do we know? The text, the graphe, is the the text. Now, everyone, here's another word, theopneustos. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? nustas. Everyone do this. Look at me and do this. Take a deep breath in, blow it out. That's Nustas. Now, for a second, follow with me here. The text on the page of the book that you read is the of God. It is his breath, his life breath. It's not like a thought. It is the breath of God being poured into this book. The scriptures are profitable for all these things, not necessarily our opinions. Now listen to this. The Bible is 40 authors under the influence of the Holy Spirit over three continents spanning 2,000 years, and it doesn't contradict itself. Here's the other thing. Hollywood can't even make a three-part movie over five years without plot holes. So you tell me how, how this is possible outside the work of the Spirit in the scriptures themselves. It's not, because I guarantee you, you would have a wicked person trying to change the scriptures. But we know going back to things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and going back to the original text, the farthest we can go back, the message hasn't changed. And so the scriptures are God-breathed. And so we consider these scriptures today two words, inerrant and infallible. Inerrant, incapable of being wrong, and infallible, holy, useful, and true. So when people throw these words around, now you know what they mean. This book is the breath of the living God. It is written by 40 authors over three continents spanning 2,000 years, and it does not contradict. And because of those factors, we see the Bible as inerrant and infallible. And so I'm so thankful for these types of scriptures. One thing I love also, so J.D. Greer is one of my guys, Matt Chandler is my other guy. He says this and I love it. He says, Truth is not inside of you and it is not fluid, truth is outside of you and it's fixed. How are you supposed to navigate life if truth is whatever you feel like it is? And so, what is the fixed truth? It is the scriptures that we hold. Our compulsions so often aren't towards Jesus, but to ourselves, and they're against him. And so with that, our compulsions are often not towards the scriptures, but against them and to ourselves. Not scripture, or not some scripture, all scripture is breathed out. Not just the easy text, but everything is breathed out by God. It is his word for his purposes. Now, sometimes those texts make us wonder, right? Sometimes those texts make us scratch our head, but sometimes we have to trust the mystery of God. And some knowing that sometimes knowing that somewhere for something, even the difficult texts are profitable. Now, I'm not gonna lay out all the, the arguments there, because that would just not not this sermon, but but here's here's brings us to this question. This is what I want us to know. When we talk about the people that make the objection for, well, you see all scripture, well, the scripture really means the old testament, not the new testament. So the new testament's kind of you know willy-nilly all over the place. That's not true. When Paul writes about the sacred texts in verse 15, he's talking about the Old Testament, but then when he shifts to 16, in verse 16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. He's talking about the Old Testament text and the New Testament letters and the gospels that are coming out of it. How do we know that? Because if you want to turn with me really quick, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 through 19-20 says this, And we have something more, sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, the first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So the first thing we can know is that this comes from the Spirit working and being active within the church and within these writers. And I'm not going to go through all these texts because uh, we just don't have time for that. But here's four things that we know about All scripture, including both Old Testament and New Testament texts, is the first thing, Jesus. The words of Jesus are taught in the Gospels. And Jesus also taught that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so we can understand and and take that, understand that the New Testament is also in in all scripture. I'd encourage you to go back and and look at these uh, these texts later. Here's a second one, Peter. Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter actually says that Paul's writings are equal with the rest of scripture. So if we're reading a letter from Paul, we would know. So Peter. Here's the third one. By Paul himself. His letters never contradict the Old Testament, and in fact, they explain Jesus through the Old Testament. He writes by command of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 14. Go back and read that passage. And then even in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes both Deuteronomy 25 and Luke 10, and he equates them As the same thing. He doesn't say, well, Deuteronomy is the scriptures, but this is my thoughts. He's saying, no, these are the same thing. Here's the last one. The church fathers. For you guys who love the theologians and, and the Puritans, all these things, going back, even church fathers, Puritans, all these. Look, the Bible was canonized around 400 AD and included the New Testament letters in it. Which tells me if they didn't believe that the New Testament was really the breath of God or the scripture being breathed out, they wouldn't have included it. And those who established the canonization of scripture actually made it a habit of reading Paul's letters aloud. So we can put, the, put the, to bed the argument that all Scripture isn't just referring to the Old Testament. It's referring to the Old Testament and the New Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness. Here's the thing. The Scriptures are breathed out by God, but the Scriptures also are sufficient for life. The scriptures allow allow us to see ourselves in light of the cross. It shows us where where we've been doing well and we need to continue, but it also shows us where we've been veering off and, and we need a course correction. There's a guy named Ken Sandy that wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and he says, in the core of Paul's letters, when correction is given... He always keeps Jesus at the center of both instruction and correction. And so when we see that Jesus, that the scriptures are breathed out by God and they're profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, we need to keep that in mind. But we also need to keep the mind of Jesus when we do these things. We can't just take our big old Bible and say, repent, smack. We can't do that especially the people within the church we we cannot do that he goes on to say we need to talk to others about their if we need to talk to others about their faults we should ask god to resist our tendency to hammer people into submission by dwelling on their failures now this is the scriptures are profitable for teaching and for correction they teach us how to be made and walk and become all these different things be sanctified in the image of Jesus, but also to correct us when we begin to veer outside of that. It is sufficient for life. The scriptures equip us, it makes us ready for the task at hand. It, sh- it shows us the path of God while we're trying to be made more and more into his likeness. Now, this is where I begin to say it's sufficient for life, which means you have a culture and we have a culture that we're living in that's trying to tell you that this Bible isn't really the Word of God or it contains the Word of God or it, that it's an old ancient text that it really doesn't matter. And that's not true because the moment church that we begin to lose our grasp on the word everything begins to fall apart. I heard a story once where a pastor walked into to the pulpit and he opened up the Bible to Luke chapter 2 and he goes, "All right, well, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, right?" ripped out Luke 2. He goes, "So what does that change about the story?" Well, a lot. Okay. Flip, flip, flip. Let's say Jesus hung on a cross, but he wasn't resurrected okay well let's just let you know none of the new testament is is worth anything now what and so we begin to see the more that we let ourselves and let culture and even some churches around here that are beginning to tear metaphorical pages out of the scriptures we begin to lose our foothold in understanding what the word of god really is saying and then we go back we need to understand that all scriptures god breathed, not just the text that we feel good about and so, so the, the scriptures are God-breed, they are sufficient for life, and here's the last thing, they must be our focus. How do we know? Paul is saying that they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul is specifically writing to Timothy in verse 17. I want you to know that. But we as church leaders must take this to heart as Paul is writing to a church leader. That we, as your pastors and elders, must rightfully handle the text in order to shepherd you the best way we know how. That we wouldn't deviate from the text, that we wouldn't tell you something untrue and to lead you astray. But there's also room for us as believers to understand what Paul is saying, that we must have a healthy thirst for the word because it does much for our own spiritual lives. The word of God is forming us by the power of the spirit that we would be competent and ready to do the will of God. And if you don't know the scriptures, how will you know what the will of God is? if we consider the Scriptures as something less than, if we consider the Scriptures as as just kind of something that's there or a book that we grab and and get the dust off every week, then what is it doing for us? As we we live in a culture where truth seems to be coming more fluid every day, let us not let go of the fixed truth that we have in this book. Let us not leave the very Word of God that allows us to see God Himself we, we know that, that the, the, the Bible, that the word of God is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, separating joint from marrow. And it's not a suggestion for your walk with Christ. It isn't a suggestion for your walk with Christ. It, it, it's a demand. And, and I'm not saying there's no room to, to wrestle with some hard text. I'm not saying even at times that there's room for, a little, for, for doubt at times. But we can't flee from the very thing that binds us as God's people. The Spirit of God and the, the Word of God. This is the one place that Christians cannot give up the battle. This is the one place, church, that we cannot acquiesce. This is the one place where we cannot take a step back. We must rightly handle the Word of God. And rightly handling the Word of God is a place that we have to find ourselves in. And I was reminded this week, as a kind of wrap-up here, I was reminded this week and uh, talking to a group of, a group of families and, and some, of, you know, some of our elders is, is that when we stand on the Word of God, so often we'll find ourselves standing alone. It's, I think that's a true fact. When we truly stand on the Word of God, we'll find ourselves standing alone. Now, I'm a World War II history, whatever you want to call me. <laughs> Some people say it's good. Some people are like you're weird. All right, um, I'm, the, I'm the guy that'll sit there and go to a museum and I'll read the plaque, and my wife's like, Pff. "I'm like, where'd you go?" I love World War II history, and and I've I've quoted this before, but one of my favorite World War II memoirs, whatever you want to call it, biographies, whatever, is is on the 101st Airborne of Easy Division called Band of Brothers. And they, together, would would run a hill called Curahee, three miles up and three miles back. And when one would fail, when one would begin to slip, they'd pick them up, because the the motto of the unit was, we stand alone, because that's what Currahee meant, we stand alone. But they added to it, and it says, we stand alone together. Now, that for us, church, is where we must find ourselves. Holding fast to this word, knowing that when we stand on this word, that we'll be standing alone. But so often, church, when we stand on this word collectively, we stand alone together. And so we, we know this. We, we are the church, and if God's people are standing alone, we stand alone together. Do not forget that. So we can say this. Church, do not give up this book. It is the inspired text, scriptures given by God himself. The graphe, the text is the, of God. And if you want to get close to God, there's no closer way you can be than to be under his own breath. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. And God, as we walk through this text, God, I pray that you would just remind us of how great you are, God. I pray that we would, as we, as we sing in response, God, we would just be filled with the Spirit, that you would just allow us to sing and we would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we pray that you would just be glorified in us. God, I pray that we would be a people who hold tight and fast to the scriptures. I pray that we'd be a people who do not flee from them. I pray that we'd be a people who are loving your word because it is the breath of God and knowing that it is profitable for teaching and correction in our lives. God, let us never flee from your word. God, we give you this time and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.